This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi and his party won a landslide victory in national elections this week, making him arguably one of the most powerful political leaders in India's history. Modi is the first Prime Minister in almost 50 years to win a majority in successive elections, and he did so pushing forward a Hindu nationalist agenda. His re-election also continues a global trend of populist candidates winning top seats, including President Trump here in the United States. At the same time, India is facing many challenges. The unemployment Employment rate is at a 45-year high, and there are growing concerns of an economic slowdown. So what does Modi's re-election mean? We are joined uh, on the phone by Marshall Bhutan, who is an acting director and visiting scholar at the Center for the Advanced Study of India here at the University of Pennsylvania. And also joining me in studio, Knowledge Award and Executive Director and Editor-in-Chief Mukul Pandya. Mukul, great to see you. Thanks for coming over. Thanks, Dan. Marshall, great to have you back on the show. Glad to be back, Dan. Thanks. Thank you. So, so Mr. Modi has been reelected, Marshall. What do you see this meaning for both India, but I guess take it also on the broader scope uh, of for countries that uh, that work and want to be involved with India? Well, it is to put it mildly a historic turning point for India uh, politically, uh, for sure, and perhaps uh, eventually uh, economically. Um, this is this is a, a the first time that we can say uh, for sure that the so-called Congress system, based on the Congress Party's dominance in the 60s, 70s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, even of India's politics, is over, and it is emphatically over. It has been replaced by the BJP system. We can say now. Um, where the BJP and its and its uh, aspirations and identity now shape the entire Indian political environment. There was a remarkable map available on many media websites showing the extent of the BJP's uh, winnings across India during this election, and it's astounding. If you the the orange is the, typically the color identified with the BJP. And practically the entire country is orange, colored orange, except for the very farthest south states and the little bit of the east coast, southeastern belt of India. So it's it's a huge turning point. Um, it's a turning point in terms of India's own identities, uh, most importantly, and it's a turning point politically. What are the main reasons, uh, Marshall, uh, for, for this significant shift in Indian politics? Well, that's, uh, I think scholars will be asking that question and attempting to answer it for a long time to come. I think, I think uh, you know, it's only 30 years ago that BJP really began to get political traction in India. What has happened, though, over those 30 years is that the, the, uh, the Congress system kind of partly died from old age. Um, it had just run its string and it had run out of its of ideas and compelling uh, political messages for the people of India. Another is that the Congress uh, party itself was has been dominated throughout by the uh, so-called Gandhi dynasty, the descendants of uh, Jawaharlal Nehru, his daughter Indira, and now her sons in particular, and even her daughter-in-law. Um, so that weakened uh, steadily over the last 20 or 30 years. And along came uh, 
a new definition of what it means to be Indian. Under the, the Nehru Gandhi dynasty of the Congress system, the independence movement thinking about India, it was to be India's most importantly a secular nation in which many religious, linguistic, ethnic identities could coexist uh, easily. Um, that is now being, has been questioned and indeed has been undercut by the argument that India is essentially a Hindu nation. And here the meaning is not so much religious as it is in terms of, it is it a question of national identity. So the expression used in India is Hindutva, which conveys a sense of, of Hindu identity. Hindus represent little over 80% of the total population of India. Um, so this represents also then a real question about the future of those minorities in India. Uh, no, you're quite right, uh, Marshall, about the fact that the main opposition party, the Indian National Congress, uh, being trounced. In fact, there's no better metaphor for that, I think, than the fact that Rahul Gandhi, the uh, pre Congress president, lost his election seat in the Amethi constituency of Uttar Pradesh, which was a traditional Congress and Gandhi family stronghold for so many years. Yes. Uh, would you think uh, that the Congress or even the regional parties that tried to stop the BJP juggernaut could have done anything differently? Uh, where did they go wrong? Well, I don't think the regional parties had the, first of all, the organizational strength and most importantly, the kind of leader, a single leader among them who could persuade Indians, of, you know, in this case, of over 600 million Indians who voted out of the 900 million who were eligible to vote, a remarkable turnout, by the way, and the highest uh, electoral participation in India's independent history. Um, nobody could compare to Modi in terms of his um, political domination of the, of the landscape in India. Uh, certainly no regional leader, and of course not even Rahul Gandhi particularly Rahul Gandhi, who put in, frankly, a very lackluster performance and has consistently as Congress party leader and uh, politician and principal spokesperson. Um, so I don't think it was ever possible for the regional parties to, to contest the national election. The other thing to be, bear in mind is I think Indians are looking for a single national leader. Now, one could argue, well, would it have been different if there had been a more powerful, effective leader coming from, particularly from the Congress Party, than Rahul Gandhi or even his sister Priyanka. Um, perhaps it would have been somewhat less, but I think the time had come, Indians are turning to uh, a more, um, or a desire for, an aspiration for, a clearer representation of what it means to be Indian. Marshall, let's take a step back here for a second, and obviously this being his second term, how do you view his first term in office, and and what do you think that going into this second term is, the belief is by the, the citizens of India as to why he is the right person to take India over, uh, to lead India over these next five years? Well, um... Let me take the, the second question first. Uh, you know, I, I think that, well, I'll take the, the first question first. Um, it was a very mixed record. And frankly, yeah. 
uh, everyone I, every India expert I know in India and in the United States, none of us thought this outcome was likely. It was all it was on the spectrum of possibilities, of course, but none of us thought it was likely. We all thought the BJP would take a big haircut uh, in this election because Modi had raised huge expectations in the 2014 campaign about job creation, about better governance, and so forth, most of which were disappointed. There have been some political achievement, economic achievements, but those are largely in the sector that affect uh, business directly. The biggest missteps were in the sector that affected ordinary Indians the most. So, But what's happened is that he has not been punished for that mixed record. And that is why you're led to the understanding that this is really a, a, um, a, de- a deeper phenomenon of Indians, uh, younger India's aspirations for a stronger India, a stronger person representing India. And they're willing to give him a second chance. Um, so I, you know, looking ahead, I, I, none of us knows what, how, what this prime minister is going to do with this extraordinary mandate. Um, one can, you know, begin to speculate about what, what the next five years will bring, and you know, we, we are all beginning to speculate. But certainly, it'll bring a, a political space that is totally dominated by Narendra Modi. So, so Marshall, just to to drill a little deeper into what you said about his record. Uh, when the Modi government came to power in 2014, it promised sub-Kavikas, or economic growth for everyone. And as you correctly said, those hopes were not exactly fulfilled. Uh, unemployment is at the highest level that has been in 1940, since the 1970s. There's plenty of evidence that the demonetization exercise of 2016 was a disaster yeah. and caused a lot of hardship, especially to the poor. Rural India has been facing tremendous distress with farmers, you know, agitating and committing suicide and so on. And normally you would expect that when economic times are that tough, it works against the incumbent governments. But in this case, the opposite has happened. And do you you think that the dictum, it's the economy stupid, doesn't apply in India? (laughs) Yeah, so one comment I saw is that, well, the Democrats back in 92 with Clinton were wrong. It's actually, it's the identity, stupid. (laughs) Um, And I'm actually persuaded by that argument. Um, Mm. I think there's a a really important wheel has turned uh, in in India's political evolution, um, where there's a new political culture uh, in which uh, people are looking first and foremost for a leader who can, who can, with whom they can identify, who in, in their minds embodies their aspirations, their political aspirations, their social aspirations, and their economic aspirations. So that allowed Modi to make the argument that he is that man. I mean, he's been making it all along, of course. He made it in 2014. But in 2014, he built his whole campaign on a set of of uh, propositions, of promises to the Indian people, the, the Ache Din, the, you know, good times, good days. And this time you will notice there were none of those promises made. It was all about you know, I am I am the best person to protect India. I am the Chowkidar, the watchman for India. Of course, the Fawama uh, terrorist attacks in Kashmir p- 
played into his hands and gave him an opportunity to make that argument even more forcefully. So they set aside their concerns, the upvoters did, about the failures or the lack of performance uh, of the government on things that concern them very directly and are willing to give this man a second chance. So what then do you think will be the business and economic implications of, in, of India's elections? Uh, do you, how seriously will the Modi government address the need for reforms? Well, I wish I knew the answer to that question. I think, look, the business community, first and foremost, is thrilled because, uh, most importantly, because business, as we know, values, above all, stability and certainty. Um, and this election outcome certainly provides that. Um, they, and I have detected in my several recent visits to India, you know, a, a different expectation vis-a-vis motives, some, some apprehensions about some of the policies and actions that Modi, Modi 1.0 undertook, but a desire to, to avoid a kind of messy outcome in this election that would have produced a, an equally messy coalition government with a lot of uncertainty. So that's number one. And we saw that, of course, in the huge run-ups in the the stock markets uh, over the last couple of days. Um, Secondly, I think many people expect or hope that he will now return to his a more economic reform-based governance uh, that he started with back in right after 2014 and that he will renew some of those reform efforts, such as in, in the land markets and labor markets. Um, he'll do important new things to improve the status of agriculture. You're absolutely right about the agrarian distress. But nobody really knows for sure um, how he will interpret this mandate. He is also constrained um, by a variety of conditions at home. What, what are some of those constraints? Well, well, number one, um, you know, the public sector is is pretty constrained by the its desire and need to maintain the to not have the current account balance grow even further, the current account deficit uh, grow further, the balance get worse, and um, uh, there's very few public resources available right now um, for the government to provide, for instance, a fiscal stimulus. Many in India are calling for a big fiscal stimulus uh, at this point. I think that's going to be very difficult for him to do without substantially increasing the current account deficit. Um, Secondly, uh, even though he will now totally dominate the the Lok Sabha, the legislature, uh, and increasingly likely the Raja Sabha, the upper house of parliament, and have a clear sailing through of uh, legislation through those two bodies. A lot of uh, economic policy really happens, is implemented at the state level in India. Uh, and that makes it much more complex to bring about real results. So uh, there's some, there's a lot of, the biggest problem he faces right now in terms of the uh, total economy is the slump in private investment, or at least anemic growth in private investment. And that's in part, or large part, due to the uh, very high debt loads of many uh, Indian companies 
they're in big process of deleveraging. The banks, a lot of the banks, particularly the public sector banks, are weak. So he would have to undertake a big recapitalization of the banks in order to really free up the, that capital um, and make private investment roar again. Uh, that also would be difficult for him. But it is also, Marshall, interesting that the fact that for the last couple of years it has been reported and talked about about how India is is has this potential as such of this growth economy moving yeah. forward. And I think part of that it, it links to Mr. Modi and maybe his reelection, this belief that 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 is where India is headed. So would we potentially have the opportunity to see some greater investment coming in from companies in the United States over the next few years? Yes. If if Mr. Modi also uses this opportunity to make it to make India a more attractive place to invest, um, I give Modi credit for India having greatly improved its standing in the World Bank's ease of doing business in, index over the the last five years. You know, it's it's gone from hundred plus to seventy seventh on the on that list. Um, but there are still, you talk to any business person, I'll say it's still one of the most complicated, difficult places to do business in. Um, so there would have to be a very substantial further liberalizing of the investment environment. And the, the, the lost opportunity there is particularly um, painful when you consider that given what's happening in China, given the U.S.-China trade conflicts, the ways in which American companies that have invested heavily in China over the last 30 years are now looking for other places to put their investment, to put their supply chains. India could benefit enormously from that new situation, but it's going to need to move very very aggressively to make that possible. So I'm glad you brought that up, Marshall, because I was wondering in the little time we have left to talk about, you know, why, uh, what will the new Modi administration's relationships be with the with its neighbors in South Asia, especially Pakistan, and what will be some of the implications for security? Also, the relationship with China is very critical. So what do you what do you think will happen there? Well, let me let me uh, respond to that first by by pointing out that that uh, you know the single most important thing Prime Minister Modi can do to enable India's uh, strong participation in the international system and in particular a a more um, more leverage in his relationships with uh, India's neighbors would be to improve the economy and to get economic growth back up. In fact, it should be higher than the 7, 7.5% it's been at the last few years, um, and although it's not at that point now, it should be in the 8 or 9% or 10% even uh, uh, bracket. Um, so um, India's relations with its uh, all, all of its neighbors, regional neighbors in South Asia, Accepting Pakistan, you know, are passable. They're okay. They're, but there, there are constraints on uh, in, in India in each of those relationships, and they'll basically depend on the character of the regime in that country, whether in Bangladesh or in Sri Lanka or in the Maldives or in Nepal, for that matter. Um, the big problem, of course, the big challenges with Pakistan, and you would note that practically at the same moment that. 
uh, Prime Minister Imran Khan of Pakistan uh, publicly congratulated Mr. Modi on his victory, uh, the Pakistan military launched a, a ballistic missile, <laughs> yes. um, sending a very clear message. Um, uh, we, we, we see what's going on. Remember who we are. Right? Pakistan has not um, admitted to India's preeminence in the subcontinent, and one cannot foresee the day when they will. Um, the only way to, to really change that over time is for India to have such a preponderance of power in the region, number one. Number two, at the same time, to make it, to make it clear to Pakistanis that they would benefit from, from greater integration with a really dynamic Indian economy. There have been the two parties have been unwilling on both sides, uh, to, both ways to to improve this relationship, or unable to. So I foresee Pakistan continuing to be a a real challenge for Prime Minister Modi. I, he may well reach out in the coming days, not days, but coming months, to some kind of olive branch to to Pakistan, but really only as a way to, to quiet things down for a while. And what about the relationship with China, which, as you know, of course, also plays in a very big way uh, a role in shaping the relationship with Pakistan? Well, we've seen Prime Minister Modi over the last two years kind of make nice with China, right, after the Doklam incident in the High Himalayas, where the two countries nearly came to blows um, uh, in the summer of 2017, I guess it is. Um, so uh, he realizes he needs to keep a balance with China. He needs to keep things from getting too uh, shaky. Um, uh, and I think... Uh, the, uh, Xi Jinping has had the same objective during the same this time period, but the rivalry is still very intense and will continue. And again, the best thing that Prime Minister Modi can do to improve the, uh, India's leverage vis-a-vis China is to improve and to improve India's economy. Uh, I think what, what I'm trying to say in general is that while some people look to Prime Minister Modi to be more assertive on the international stage, having uh, gotten this enormous mandate, uh, ultimately, and I think he will be stylistically, he's been that way, he's operated that way on the international stage ever since he came to power, but I think... Uh, ultimately, the test is going to be what, he, what can he do to make India, India's economy more, more vibrant and more successful. You know, speaking of the economy, uh, there was a really interesting essay recently uh, published in the New York Times, which suggested that uh, Mr. Modi's economic policies are less like those of Ronald Reagan and more like those of Bernie Sanders. Yeah, I read the same op-ed, Mughal. Richard Sharma thought that. Yeah, it's a really interesting piece. Exactly. And you know, there's a, there's do, a lot. do you expect that Mr. Modi's 2.0 government will continue with the populist largesse? Yeah. Or will that go away now that the elections are over? Well, uh, that's the 64 million rupee question. You know, I mean, it's... Um, uh, we all expected him to be uh, a consistent and powerful reformer back in 2014. Uh, it didn't pan out, and guess what? He turned in a more populist direction, because in India, and this is Richard's point, in India, if you, if you want to get reelected, um, that's the expectation voters have of you. You have to meet that expectation of populist programs. And, of course, he did that having criticized uh, uh, the your previous Congress-led government 
for is handing out, pushing money into airplanes and dropping it over the farm sector. Um, he's, done, he's done exactly the same in the last year to try to quiet the agrarian distress before the election. Um, so this is the trick for Indian, any Indian prime minister who wants to be truly transformative. How do you bring about the reforms that will uh, power the Indian economy into a, into a first world economy eventually, um, certainly into a middle income, a substantial middle income economy, while at the same time, uh, for political reasons, having Indians feel confidence about confident about what the government is doing for them. It's a very delicate and difficult transition that has to be made and. Uh, one can only hope that now with this so empowered that Prime Minister Modi will feel able to, to try that. So then does part of, of that scenario that you lay out, Marshall, does does part of that play out with building future relations with the United States? Well, absolutely. And on this score, I think what we'll see is that with the first, I'm sure Modi will come to Washington again. You know, he was last... Uh, in in Washington for a summit with the president in June of 2017, um, uh, he will come, uh, and the the hug and handshake will at least from Modi's side be even warmer. Um, uh, they will see, and President Trump and Prime Minister Modi will see in each other, you know, like-minded or at least like in in empowered people. But although uh, there there are big differences as well. Um, I think that uh, Modi has been absolutely convinced that India's relationship with the United States is critically important for India. President Trump has clearly put a lot of stock in the relationship and has moved in a number of directions to, uh, to ensure it continues to develop, although not so much on the economic front. And I think the Prime Minister Modi will be pushing for uh, dealing to deal with some of those economic issues, particularly on trade. Um, but on the security front, the relationship continues to grow closer. I think there's been some nervousness on the Indian side about whether President Trump would be consistent in his hitherto positive approach to India. Um, hopefully they can now feel more confident about that. So, so, Marshall, what would be your advice to investors who are considering investing in India? What opportunities should they explore, and what are the biggest risks that they should watch out for? Well, uh, you know, the easiest—not the easiest—the um, la- la- the least challenging path for investment in India now is to is to respond to this burgeoning middle class which has, is very aspirational, and that's basically this aspiring near middle class or middle class that is voting for, for Modi in many, many areas of the country. Um, because that, the consumer sector is the sector that is least affected by government regulation and intrusion. And uh, thus you've seen in the last two or three years the big U.S. Uh, investments in India US, by U.S. companies in India have all been in the consumer sector. Um, that's that's the surest way to get a piece of the Indian economy and of its growth uh, trajectory um, without getting hobbled by regulation. 
And I think um, given that the Modi government turned in more protectionist directions over its, the last two years, um, we can hope that the prime minister will pull back from some of that and begin to open up the rest of them. He wanted people to come and make an Indi- companies to come and make in India. If he really wants to do that, he's got to reverse course and again liberalize the, the investment environment. In which case, then it becomes possible for some of American and other companies that are making in China and Vietnam and elsewhere to come and make in India. Marshall, great to have your insight on the show today. Thank you, sir. My pleasure. Thank Th- you both. Thank you. Marshall Bhutan Mukul, great to see you again. Thank you, Dan. Thank, Thank you, Marshall. for coming in. Marshall Bhutan from uh, here at the University of Pennsylvania, Mukul Pandya, uh, Knowledge Award and Executive Director and Editor-in-Chief. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.